0: Well, good morning again, friends. Uh, Today we are continuing our uh, series, our summer blockbuster sermon series centered around the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah in the narratives of uh, the latter part of First Kings, predominantly. And last week, Pastor Paul showed us how Uh, God had restored rain to the land and how that rain was symbolic of his immeasurable uh, covenant faithfulness uh, and and kindness towards his wayward and rebellious people. And then God uh, then empowers Elijah to run ahead of Ahab all the way back to Jezreel, um, symbolizing yet again God's willingness to redeem Ahab's kingship. And so where Pastor Paul left us off last week, God's undeserved grace had been revealed. Hope had been restored. And Israel was set to live happily ever after with God at the center of their community life. But then we arrive at our text for today. And I mentioned in the introduction to this sermon series that for those of us who are familiar with these stories, it would seem surprising that someone would suggest that the main theme of the books of the kings is actually God's covenant faithfulness, his dogged pursuit of his people and his desire to bless them. Um, and, it's, and it's difficult because what we see here. Um, is is largely a depressing account of human failure and rebellion against God. Over and over and over again, it seems. For every moment of triumph and hope and breath of fresh air that we get as readers, there seems to be ten chapters of them doing everything in their power to squash it. And our passage today introduces that sort of next downward spiral. But not first without nourishing us and preparing us to see that God is at work even in this. All right, and that's really the point of our text today. We're going to see how Elijah himself seems here to finally break and give up hope for the restoration of his people. And how God meets him in his crisis of faith with gentleness and tenderness to remind him that God is tirelessly carrying out his grand plan for the redemption of the world, even when it all seems, to our limited human perspective, um, to be hopelessly falling apart all around us. Okay, and so the first thing we're going to see in our text this morning is Elijah's response to his seemingly hopeless circumstances, okay? So God has just won this decisive victory over Baal. He's restored rain to the land. And in verse one, we see that Ahab arrives back at his palace in Jezreel, and he begins to uh, regale his wife with the details of the events of the day, all right? And I imagine, uh, I like to imagine Ahab, you know, strolling into the living room and collapsing on the couch, kicking his feet up, and Uh, You know, saying to Jezebel, you would not believe the day that I've just had. You know, and he proceeds to tell her everything that had happened. And it seems uh, from the text as though he leaves the little detail about the slaughtered prophets until last. Um, And so, yeah, I imagine him telling her the story and, you know, Elijah did this and then Elijah did that. And oh, man, you wouldn't believe it even if you had seen it. And also your prophets are dead. (laughs) Right And of course, Jezebel predictably flies into a rage upon hearing this, and she sends a messenger to Elijah to tell him that she's going to do to him what he has done to her prophets. She swears an oath. Um, Now, this is just a little sidebar here, but doesn't it seem odd that she sends a messenger to announce to him what she's going to do to him rather than just sending some thugs over there to get the job done? And I get the sense that this is meant to be taken as evidence that Jezebel does not understand that Elijah is the prophet of the true God and that she's actually quite limited in her power to find him and to carry out her will. She's actually drunk on the illusion of her own power. And so God seems to use her own hubris against her to give Elijah the chance to get out of Dodge. And so he does. But there's something else uh, going on here that I think the author wants us to see, but it gets a little clouded in the English translation. You see, up to this point in the Elijah narrative, Elijah has been a perfect example of what it looks like to wait on the word of the Lord. Maybe even a little too perfect, um in fact, yeah, sorry, maybe even a little bit too perfect. The fact is, this is the first time I think, for many of us that we see, we see Elijah act out of fear rather than faith. and for the and for most of us, this is the first time sorry, that we can actually really relate to this man. He acts out of fear rather than faith here. And so let's consider what we've seen in the narrative so far. 17, verse 2. That's where we started. All right? And so in 17, verse 2, Elijah has just come to Ahab. He's announced that this drought is coming, that there's going to be no more rain, no more dew. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith. And then verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And then verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, After many years, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. uh, Verse 2, So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. See, the author takes great pains to show us that Elijah never makes a move until the word of the Lord comes to him. Because he is God's prophet, functioning as God's mouthpiece to his people, he must not only speak, but also do only what the word of the Lord commands him. But here, he breaks that pattern. And the author sets it up in such a way that we can see this distortion. Right. This time, this time, it's almost as though the word of Jezebel came to Elijah and he arose and ran for his life. Right. The author is signaling to us that something major has changed. Elijah is having a crisis of faith. And I mean, think about it. There's, there's obviously a lot more going on here than simply a threat to his life. He's had plenty of reason to fear for his life. Every other time, God has sent him somewhere, right? When God told him to present himself to Ahab uh, after the drought to announce that the rain was going to return, he first meets Obadiah in the wilderness, right? And Obadiah tells him, Ahab has not stopped looking for you, rather, for the last three and a half years trying to kill you. And still he goes ahead and meets Ahab, right? Or, Or when God sent him on a long journey to Zarephath, in the middle of a famine to be cared for by some destitute foreign widow. That could easily have been interpreted as a death sentence, right? Or when God first sent Elijah to Ahab to tell him that rain and dew would be shut off to his kingdom. No um, sane person walks up to a king and threatens the well-being of his kingdom without um, a healthy awareness that it might not be received very well. Right, And yet, in every one of these instances before, Elijah obeys God unquestionably, despite the risks involved. So this clearly isn't simply about him fearing for his own life. This is despair setting in. Elijah has realized that as long as Jezebel is pulling the strings in Israel, there can be no hope for restoration at all. At least humanly speaking. And in that moment of realization, Elijah gives up hope that God is in fact going to restore his covenant people to himself. And so he throws up his hands and admits defeat. Elijah collapses into the depressing belief that despite all of his hard work and faithfulness, Jezebel and her God, Baal, have won. And we see in the very next verse that he's throwing in the towel on his ministry entirely because he heads south into Judah, right? And he, there he dismisses his servant. He says, I'm not going to need you anymore. I no longer require your services. He then continues south, walking for an entire day into the middle of nowhere. He finds a nice tree to curl up under and he asks God to take his life. He goes to sleep hoping that he never wakes up again. This is a man who has lost all sight of hope. He has forgotten who he has been representing all this time. This is a man who has allowed his present circumstances to drown out the word of God and all of his promises to him. And this is such a relatable human moment. I mean, how often don't we claim to believe in a sovereign God? A God who's in control of all things. But then, you know, as soon as something goes a little bit sideways in our life, or at least doesn't go the way that we think it ought to go, we immediately begin to act as though God is powerless and nowhere to be found. right? And when we act this way, we are revealing our functional beliefs in that moment. And this is no different than Elijah. So listen to Elijah's words here. He says, "In this is verse 4. Um, he says in verse 4, <laughs> It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah has lost sight of the big picture. He has turned inward and is thinking exclusively in self-referential terms, rather. All he can see in his present circumstances is his own personal failure. And because of our fallen human nature, fear and despair always threaten to blind us to the big picture. In those moments, our nature tells us that our emotional gut reactions are all the data that we need to consider. But God is speaking too, if you'll listen. And quite frankly, some of his most precious truths in scripture speak directly into the lowest moments of human experience because God understands us. And this is the second thing that we're gonna see in this text. We're gonna see God's surprising response to Elijah's crisis of faith, right? God understands Elijah. And because he understands him, he doesn't rebuke him for his lack of faith, but rather he deals gently and tenderly with him in it. Elijah says, I can't take the failure anymore. Just kill me. And God says, no, you're just tired. You just need to be reminded of who I am. And so he sends an angel to nurse and to nourish Elijah back to health. And notice how he doesn't, right? He doesn't wake Elijah up and rehearse all the promises of scripture with him. He meets him where he is. He acknowledges his human frailty. He says, You are just a man. I know your weakness. And because of that, I know how hard your circumstances are. Like a loving father dealing with an exasperated or exhausted child, he says, Just eat and rest. And everything will look different in the morning. I promise. This is beautiful, personalized, fatherly care. And this is one of those rare and precious glimpses into the tenderness of God's heart for his people. And through it, Elijah is strengthened. And his trust is renewed. See, he's not there all the way yet. He's not, he hasn't fully bounced back. But he's been strengthened enough to carry on, to take the next step. And notice that the pattern of obedience has been restored here. Verses seven and eight. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went. All right, so the pattern's been restored. The pattern of trust, the pattern of faithful, waiting on the word of the Lord. And so God sends him on his way in the strength of that food, the text says, having been physically renewed and restored, he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. And for those of you who don't know, Horeb is another name for Sinai. And obviously this is highly significant because here in our text, Elijah essentially retraces the steps of Israel from the promised land all the way back to their place of origin as God's covenant people to to meet with God, to counsel with God face-to-face concerning their future, just as Moses had after the exodus. And just as we've just seen how God has... Has physically renewed and restored Elijah under the broom tree. Here we're going to see how God really leans in and spiritually renews him. Verse 9 says, Then there he came to a cave and lodged it. This is him arriving at Horeb, at the Mount of God. He came to a cave and lodged it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah arrives and he settles in and God says, what are you doing here? And this isn't, hey, Elijah, you're not supposed to be here. Aren't you supposed to be back in Jezreel? What are you doing here? It's more as though God has been waiting for him as someone awaits the arrival of a friend for a visit. And when he arrives, God welcomes him in and says, let's talk. What's been eating you, Elijah? Verse 10, Elijah brings his... Complaint. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord, the God of hosts, rather, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah is frantic still. He said, What is going on, Lord? How could this possibly be a part of your plan to redeem your people? This doesn't make any sense. What have you been doing with me all this time? God doesn't answer, really. He simply says, let me show you something, Elijah. Verse 11 and 12. Sorry. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the the earthquake, rather, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. See, so Elijah stands sheltered in this cave in the mount of God and the Lord passes by and there's a gale force wind that rips across the face of the mountain so strong that it tears the mountain it says and and it hurls broken chunks of rock against it smashing it right so this is a terrifying image but the Lord was not in the wind then an earthquake shakes the very foundations of the mountain right it begins to shift and heave underneath Elijah's feet but again The Lord was not in the mountain. And by the way, during an earthquake, I mean, you do not want to be in a cave, right? Like, that's terrifying. Um, Then, fire, again, falls from heaven, as it did in the last chapter on on the the substitute altar, right? Fire falls from heaven, and the whole mountain erupts into flame, and still, the Lord is not in it. Now, all of these wind, earthquake, fire, uh, these natural sort of uh, phenomenon are, are common theophanies, and particularly in the Old Testament, right? They are ways in which God usually announces the arrival of his holy presence on the scene somewhere. They are great and they are terrifying, but Elijah recognized that God is not in them. He controls them, he uses them. They are most definitely at his disposal, but he is not most fundamentally identified with them. And this is a shift in, in, in Hebrew understanding of God. This is, it's, it's much more significant to Elijah than it would be to you or I. All right. Then, verse 12b, after the fire the sound of a low whisper. Now, scholars have often debated how to interpret these three Hebrew words here. But the gist of them is that there was some sort of a faint, barely detectable voice in the calm after the storm. One, one scholar suggests this interpretation. He says, it was a vibrant silence pulsating, full of energy, alive, right? You know, when I was writing this, I couldn't stop singing Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sound of Silence. That's all I kept thinking of when I was reading this. Um, But whatever the sound or lack of sound was, Elijah recognized immediately that God was present in this. 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He covers his face like Moses. So for those of you who don't know, Moses went through a very, very similar um, experience at Mount Sinai. He also asked God to show him his glory and uh, God put him in a cave and said, I'm going to have to put my hand over the cave because if you see my face, you will surely die. No man can see me and live, he says. That's Exodus 33, verse 20. And so, so Elijah is, is clearly heeding this warning that God had given to Moses all those centuries before. And so he wraps his face, he goes out of the cave to approach the Lord because he recognized the Lord's presence in the silence. And you see what Elijah needed to know most at this moment in his life, and the point that God is making to him in this is this. In the midst of all the chaos and noise and danger of life, though I may not be at work the way you think I should be, and even though you may barely be able to detect it sometimes, wherever my word is, there I am present and active. That's what God is teaching him. And this is emphasized by the use of a common Hebrew literary device here because we see immediately following that, um, that lesson, if you want to call it that, that, that display um, both God's question and Elijah's answers are repeated word for word, right? The same the same question, the same answer, before and after, all right? This is called, in, in Hebrew literature, it's called an inclusio, and it's where parallel phrases or verses appear on either side of a major point, and they function like flashing neon signs, pointing to the fact that the the point that's being made in the center changes everything. You know, and we get this in one of my favorite Psalms of Lament, right off the bat, at the beginning of Psalm 56. Two verses of, uh, of, of complaint, right, where David says, God, be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And then he goes into this, this sort of miniature um, recounting of the lesson that he learns through this. And he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise right? He reaches that center point, that crescendo. He's being reminded here of the living and active promises of God, right? Though the, though the grass withers and the, and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord stands forever. That's what David is, is grasping here and, and being reminded of. And then he comes down the other side filled with confidence, right? In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? But then the next two verses... Go back into the complaint. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They've waited for my life. So what is going on here? Is this point that I've learned this great lesson, but it doesn't matter anyway because it's all the same? No, the point is that this shift in perspective, this, this spiritual strengthening or reorientation doesn't come from the removal of the trial, but rather it is given as a gift In the midst of the trial. Like David, Elijah's circumstances haven't changed. Yet somehow everything is different now. Why? Because he has been reminded of who God is and how he works, even in his present circumstances. God meets Elijah. Elijah in the depths of his fear and confusion and speaks precious words of comfort to him there. And he does the same for you and me. He speaks to us in the darkest nights of the soul, right in the valley of the shadow of death, when our fear and our despair scream loudest and threaten to drown him out. He whispers, I'm still right here. I've got you in the palm of my hand. I'm still working out my good plans, even though you can't see it right now. And so, God has nourished and renewed Elijah physically. He has nourished and renewed Elijah spiritually. And only now, does God tell him what he needs to do? Verse 15 to 17. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. God tells Elijah, go back the way you came and anoint these three instruments of my judgment. Right? But wait, didn't Elijah think that he was all alone? I and I only, he says, am left. But God has him anoint three more who are going to carry out the next phase of God's plan. Yes, one of the other things that God has been teaching Elijah in this is that, Elijah, my plan is far bigger than just you. It doesn't all rest on your back. Your perceived personal ministry failure was not even a blip in my plan. Right? You are, you are just a single cog in the beautifully complex machinery of of my grand, unfolding, redemptive plan. And then comes verse 18. And it comes as sort of like an, oh, by the way, right? Verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 7,000 people have not bowed to Baal. Right? God is saying, I have been busy this whole time, Elijah. You've been out here despairing, and I've been quietly preserving a remnant for myself. My plans are not hindered. My plans are not thwarted. My program extends far beyond you and far beyond the ethnic nation of Israel to nations that haven't even come into existence yet. God, tell, God is telling Elijah, like, you, 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 you do not understand the scope of this plan. You cannot even begin to imagine how I'm going to work this all out. But he had given him a glimpse of it at the mountain. But Elijah doesn't get it. He he can't imagine how this is all going to work out, but you and I can, all right? We know where this is all headed. Unlike Elijah, we live on the other side of the cross, right, and we have seen the word of God made flesh. We have seen how Jesus is the high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. We have seen how he calls those who are weary and burdened to find rest in him. We have seen how he weeps with those who weeps and comforts the afflicted. We have seen how he's hidden us away in himself like Elijah being sheltered in the cave at the mount of the Lord. You see Elijah's despair was because as uh, sorry, Elijah's despair was because he thought there was no possible way for God not to pour his judgment out on his people without utterly destroying them. He didn't fully yet understand what God was showing him that day at Sinai. But God was showing him that he himself was going to take the consuming fire of his just wrath for our sins on himself. He was going to get torn apart like the mountain by the wind. He was going to be the one crushed and broken so that we could be made whole. Jesus is the solid rock that we get to stand on so that we cannot be shaken by the earthquakes of life's deepest worries. Because of Jesus, we get the gentle, soft whispers of God's fatherly comfort in our moments of crisis. Because they were His and He gave them up for us. Because of Him, there's no situation in your life that is ultimately without hope. Because of Him, there is no failure in your life that can separate you from the tender love of the Heavenly Father. He speaks his words of comfort and peace to you in the midst of it all. Do you hear them? Let's pray. Father in heaven, We praise you for the precious news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for being our rock, for being our mountain. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the due penalty for our sin, a penalty that we could never withstand. Thank you that in you we can never be shaken or crushed or broken or separated from God. In your precious and perfect name we pray. Amen.